The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. We have more robust longitudinal data to assess bleeding risk in warfarin patients. We don't have that with direct oral anticoagulants, and they're not able to draw conclusions past that first year of what the bleeding risk is with DOACs. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to Annals on Call. This podcast discusses an article titled Long-Term Risk for Major Bleeding During Extended Oral Anticoagulant Therapy for First Unprovoked Venous Thromboembolism, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Joining us on the podcast is Dr. Jory May, who's an assistant professor at UAB in the Division of Hematology and Oncology. She focuses on the care of patients with thrombosis and coagulation disorders and founded the Thrombosis Clinic at UAB. We believe you'll learn a great deal about the risk of anticoagulation in the long term. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Jory, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. This article on bleeding risk really addresses a question that the house staff have all the time, that the attendings have all the time. You're sort of an expert on this and take care of a lot of these patients. So let's start out with what is unprovoked or minimally provoked DVT or or venous thromboembolic disease. And in our previous conversation, you suggested maybe those terms have changed. Well, thanks for having me. And, you know, far from an expert, but certainly an enthusiast. So I am always happy to talk about things blood clot related. So yeah, you get to kind of an essential question is this determination of what caused the blood clot to happen? Can we figure it out or not? Um, And I think that this paper came out at a really interesting time because around the same time, we had the second update of the CHESS guidelines for uh, VTE treatment. And so in those guidelines, they start talking about, you know, we used to say unprovoked and provoked but we've really taken some time to further define what provoked means. And so in these new guidelines, they talk about a VTE that's related to a major transient risk factor, and they kind of outline what those are, a minor transient risk factor, a persistent risk factor, or what we would call unprovoked, meaning there is not an identifiable risk factor. And the reason that that's important is that we kind of used to make this distinction between provoked and unprovoked, but that category of kind of how big is the risk, major versus minor, and then also is it transient or not? Because some, if someone has a continuous risk factor, that's very different than a transient risk factor. So I think that terminology is really important and kind of really helpful as we enter into the conversation about this article. In people in who we can't identify a provocation, mm-hmm. a lot of times we're, it's recommended that we uh, leave them on anticoagulation indefinitely. Has that become controversial? You know, I think this article is really an important part of that conversation because that conversation is still evolving. As I said, in that second update that was just released, that, you know, the statement is that in a patient with a VTE with that is unprovoked, meaning we cannot identify a potential reversible etiology, that indefinite anticoagulation is usually recommended. 
However, there's a statement that, well, we need to kind of assess that balance of risk and benefit, right? The balance of what is the risk of recurrence versus what is the risk of bleeding. And the reality is that we're not great at assessing that risk and quantifying that risk. And I think that's what this article really highlights and addresses an area of, you know, we have some tools that we can talk about to assess bleeding risk, but are we giving it enough weight in that balance? And I think, you know, that conversation is continuing to, to be ongoing and continuing to change. So let's just start out with, we're talking about risks and benefits. The benefit of indefinite anticoagulation is we decrease the risk of subsequent venous thromboembolic phenomenon. What is that risk? Do we know? You know, these authors um, have been really active in that area. And you'll see kind of in the thrombosis literature, there's often kind of groups that continue to be active. And this group actually in, within the article cites their own publication that they did kind of quantify the risk of recurrence and the risk of death associated with recurrence. Cause that's what we're really trying to talk about here is, you know, what is the risk of recurrent VTE, but also what is the risk of recurrent VTE that has potentially fatal complications. So in their meta-analysis, they looked at the risk for recurrent VTE after discontinuation of anticoagulation after a first unprovoked or a weekly unprovoked event. And, and they quantified it as 10% in the first year and 36% at 10 years with a 4% risk of recurrent VTE that resulted in death. So that is kind of our starting point is those numbers of 10% at a year, 36% at 10 years with a 4% risk of unfortunately death related to VTE. And that would be uh, the 10 year risk? Yes. Okay. So the goal of this study is what's the harm of continuing anticoagulation? And you deal with anticoagulation a lot. We all have bad anecdotes. I know parents of friends of mine who were on anticoagulation and fell and hit their head and died. I think everybody my age knows those kinds of stories. And I don't know if you've had any patients in whom that happened to. The primary outcome in the study is major bleeding event. How do we define major bleeding event? You're exactly right. Uh, anticoagulation is not without risk, and that's really important to talk about. So the bleeding risk and the general criteria that we use is defined by the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. And you'll see that they reference that and they actually include those criteria of what is bleeding and what is the bleeding outcome that they looked at in the paper. And I'll tell you, this definition is kind of interesting and, and there's some debate about it because Within that definition of major bleeding, I'll kind of read out those definitions. So it's overt bleeding that is associated with a decrease in hemoglobin by two grams per deciliter, requiring two units of transfusion, occurring in a critical site, which is intracranial, intraspinal, intraocular, pericardial, all those bad places, or fatal bleeding. And so a little bit of the controversy there is that there's a very big difference between a hemoglobin drop of two grams per deciliter and fatal bleeding, yet those all kind of fall into the same category. So I think it's really important here that the authors did sort that out. They looked at major bleeding, but they also commented on fatal bleeding and intracranial you know, intracranial bleeding as well, um, because that's a very broad category of what we call major bleeding. My understanding is that we've not been very good, even though we've, we've had some formulas to try to estimate the bleeding risk, but we really haven't been able to get good numbers before. So they did major meta-analyses to try to figure this out. Could you sort of get, just give us a flavor of where they got the data and what that really means? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this was a really 
comprehensive effort in order to build on the data that we have. So what they did was they looked at studies that were either randomized controlled trials or prospective cohort studies. And they looked at patients, uh, any study that included patients with a first symptomatic VTE that had been objectively confirmed. And they actually, you know, ultimately pared down this list of studies, ended up with 27 studies and went back to the study investigators and asked to see the data in order to kind of provide a more robust and bias-free analysis. And so by pooling all of that information together, they were hoping to reach more robust conclusions about bleeding risk. This is in the pantheon of meta-analyses. This is a class A meta-analysis because they didn't just say, oh, this person had a major bleed. They know what kind of major bleed the patient had, and they could actually look at that and better give us information on what the risks were of continued anticoagulation. What about the difference between uh, vitamin K antagonists, which they very confusingly to me uh, called VKAs, and I'd never heard that term before, but I finally figured it out after I read it about three times, uh, versus the newer DOACs. How did that fit into the meta-analyses? So I think that's a really important point to highlight because we'll keep going back to the second update of the chess guidelines, because I think it's really important, but in those guidelines, actually the recommended anticoagulant for extended duration anticoagulation and for treatment phase is a direct oral anticoagulant. And those guidelines, they specifically recommend those over VKAs. And what a limitation of this study is, is that the most robust data that they were able to acquire was in studies looking at VKAs. And you're right, that, that terminology is different. We use it a lot in the thrombosis world, but I certainly understand it's a little bit confusing. So we'll say those vitamin K antagonists, which usually we're talking about warfarin. So you know, we have more robust longitudinal data for to assess bleeding risk in warfarin patients. And we don't have that with direct oral anticoagulants. And so they recognize that limitation here, and they're not able to draw conclusions past that first year of what the bleeding risk is with DOACs. And I think that's really important when we think about how to apply this clinically, because I'll tell you the majority of my patients that are on extended duration anticoagulation are on a direct oral anticoagulant. And importantly, within the class of direct oral anticoagulant, we're talking about multiple drugs, each that may have a different bleeding risk profile. So a very important limitation that you highlight there. Let's talk about the results and try to put them into as much perspective as we can, given those limitations. Sure. So, you know, the results here are that, well, the bleeding risk is high. Um, and that's kind of my take home point is that, you know, we all need to pause and say that this is a little bit high. And so kind of, if you're looking at the paper, I know we're in a podcast here, but if you pull it up, you're looking at table one, that's kind of where the big take home points for bleeding risk are and where it's really quantified. And so looking at kind of the overall bleeding risk with those vitamin K antagonists, the major bleeding risk, the incidence rate per hundred person years was 1.74. And that was a kind of a clinically significant risk with a risk of intracranial and fatal bleeding being of note and being of biggest concern. And again, we kind of struggle to quantify that more significantly with the direct oral anticoagulants, but some suggestion that the major bleeding risk did seem to be a little bit lower with an incidence rate of one, two per a hundred person years. If I remember right, this is comparing one year of a vitamin K antagonist to one year of a DOAC, those two numbers. Correct. Yes. What demographic factors increase that risk? 
So I think to me, that's kind of the most valuable part of, of this analysis is looking at kind of this question of what are the groups that are at highest risk of bleeding? Uh, and so they've kind of focused some sub-analyses, which is outlined in figure two, looking at a couple of different criteria. So the first one they look at is, is female sex, which I think is an interesting finding, noting that there was an increased risk in females versus males with use of the vitamin K antagonists. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention in my mind, I think that's because of menstrual bleeding. In, in people who menstruate, uh, adding anticoagulation can cause significant bleeding that decreases that hemoglobin and meets that criteria for major bleeding. So it's something that I talk about in any of my young patients who menstruate that are short on anticoagulation. But some other criteria that weigh in there is age greater than 65. They look at a creatinine clearance less than 50, a history of bleeding, concomitant antiplatelet therapy, or hemoglobin less than 10. All of those criteria were associated with a higher higher bleeding risk than people who did not meet those criteria. So if I remember right, they had enough data to show a five-year risk in the vitamin K antagonist, but not in the, in the DOEX. Does the risk stay fairly constant over those five years? Yeah, that's correct. You know, we uh, don't have the data to give us as much information about the DOACs. And it's hard to know kind of over time how, how that risk changes. I think the important thing is that when you're talking about an individual patient in front of you, that risk changes dynamically over that period of time. So that it's a con, kind of continual assessment of risk that's really important because a change in creatinine, the addition of an antiplatelet therapy, a drop in hemoglobin, all of those things are dynamic. And so I think when we're thinking about applying this criteria clinically, it's important that we keep those factors in mind. Having studied this article, as well as these new guidelines, how is this impacting your conversations with patients? Because that may be the people who are listening are, are having these conversations, and you probably see more of these patients than uh, the great majority of listeners. I think that this is just really emphasizing the importance of a discussion of bleeding risk. And I think uh, recognizing that determinations of anticoagulation management are very much a conversation with the patient and very patient specific. You know, I think I spend a lot of time talking in my visits and a lot of time listening because it's very much trying to understand the patient's perception of their risk of bleeding and their risk of thrombosis and trying to inform them based on what we know, what I think that their potential risk of bleeding and thrombosis is. You know, I think this is helpful and kind of reemphasizes in my practice the importance of incorporating bleeding risk. I tend to use a bleeding risk tool. And so, you know, it's kind of beyond the scope of our conversation today, but there is a tool called the VTE bleed score. There are kind of multiple scores out there, but that scoring system actually incorporates a lot of the points that are highlighted here. So age is included. It's an age greater than 60, previous bleeding. It also includes active cancer, renal insufficiency, anemia, and in male patients with uncontrolled hypertension. So in any patient where I'm making a decision about indefinite anticoagulation, I also calculate a VTE bleed score and I incorporate that score in my conversations with patients. Most importantly, I regularly assess how potentially we together can modify that bleeding risk. So one of my favorite activities is de-prescribing unnecessary aspirin for primary prophylaxis. So another uh, topical update is right. The USPSTF uh, draft guidelines are out about the use of aspirin for primary prevention. And so, you know, right here in this article, it says, well, a concomitant antiplatelet therapy increases risk. So if I have a patient that I find is on aspirin for primary prevention, and we think we can get rid of that to decrease risk, that's a huge intervention that has potential significant consequence for the patient. So I think it's really just about emphasizing the importance of bleeding risk 
assessing each patient individually and doing a continuous assessment ongoing that, you know, deciding on anticoagulation is not a one and done. It's really continuing to have that conversation and modifying whatever we can. So you see the patients back, see how they're doing, see whether or not any of the labs or medications have changed. It's sort of a shame that they uh, dichotomized age to under 65 and over 65. I'd much prefer knowing my guess is at 75, it's higher than it is at 65. At 55, it's higher than it is at 45. And I assume that you sort of, without a formula, can, can do that a, a little bit. Now, the data we have on the long-term risk is mostly with the vitamin K antagonists. Is it your gut feeling, and, and this is just gut feeling because, because nobody really has expertise, do you think the same kinds of things are going to be relatable for DOAX? Are you going to use the thoughts about this when you're, ta- when you're having discussions about DOAX? Because that's mostly what you're prescribing there. You know, the way that I think about it is that I think that these principles are the same, but I would stay away from quoting numbers that we find in VKAs and saying they apply to DOACs. Right. Because, you know, I think we really are hopeful that the long-term data is going to show that specific DOACs are associated with a lower bleeding risk than the vitamin K antagonist. There's some suggestion of that in the literature. We, you're right. We can't say anything for sure, but that's what I hope. I hope that, you know, down the line, we're going to have data that shows us that, well, the bleeding risk is not as high with these new medications. So my take home is that I think the principles that we learn about bleeding risk potentially apply, and I will continue to apply those to my practice, but I will not kind of quote, you know, specific long-term bleeding rates to patients because I just don't think we have that. The final thought is the big implications and the big advances from this paper I'm going to give you my attempt and then you modify it. Number one, uh, the longer you're on anticoagulation, the more likely you are to bleed. That actually is a tautology. That just has to be true. But there are certain things that put you at greater risk. Now, I know that uh, gender is a risk. Did they really look at whether it was women who are still menstruating versus women who are not menstruating? We really would like to know the answer to that question, uh, especially with the discussion you had. Certainly age is a risk. And even though they have dichotomized it, we know that, that the older you get, the greater you are at risk. And it's really a bad idea to be on platelet inhibition if you're going to be on long-term anticoagulation. And it's more dangerous if your renal function uh, has deteriorated below a, a GFR of approximately 50. Is that what you're going to be doing, doing now? Yeah. So I think you highlight some important take-home points about those, you know, demographic features. Some other that I I might highlight and and that we're getting from a a contributor who's also part of our conversation behind the scenes is, so what about the location of that VTE? I think what this study actually showed is that the location maybe is not as, you know, helpful as we thought in predicting, you know, that potential for bleeding risk, but is that important in maybe making you think more significantly about continuing anticoagulation because you worry about if a patient had a massive PE, you know, is that going to weigh into your decision in order to continue in order to prevent a similar event? You know, the same thing is, you know, the, in the recurrence risk for VTE, when we're talking about male patients having a higher risk than female patients. So if, you know, we know that male patients who have an unprovoked event have a higher risk of VTE than female patients. And so how does that maybe factor in if females have a higher bleeding risk and a lower recurrence rate, maybe we're going to think more differently about them than we are going to think about males. And the way I think about this study is that it has kind of opened up a very large and important can of worms. And so I think it's going to be the foundation for a lot of things to come. But I think like you, my take home points are bleeding risk is important. 
it should be talked about regularly with patients and reassessed, and that I really am paying attention to those risk factors that you mentioned. I'm talking to all menstruating patients about their menstrual cycles in case that's what's contributing. We don't know that for sure, but I do think it could be. Um, I'm talking to older patients differently than I'm talking to younger patients. I'm regularly assessing renal function. I'm regularly trying to get rid of any antiplatelet that we can. And also thinking about, you know, hemoglobin optimizing that. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, history of bleeding, right? We're incorporating that into the discussion too. So those are kind of my, my big take homes and how I think it might influence my practice. Well, Jory, thank you so much uh, for shedding a lot of light and giving us an idea of how we should take this article and the complication and the complexity of trying to figure out how long we should anticoagulate someone who has a a, a VTE and we cannot assign a provocation to. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I think this this is just the beginning of more discussions to come, so I'm excited to see what comes next. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This fascinating discussion and fascinating article points out several things. Long-term anticoagulation does have significant risks of major bleeding, and some of the major bleeding is life-threatening. There are a number of factors that increase that risk, which include age over 65, being a woman, having an estimated GFR less than 50, having a previous history of bleeding, already starting out with a lower hemoglobin than 10, and being on antiplatelet therapy. Given the known risks of bleeding from long-term anticoagulation implies, as Dr. May points out so beautifully, that each decision about anticoagulation for the long term is an ongoing conversation based upon risks of future clotting as well as risks of bleeding. There's not a simple guide to tell you what to do, but rather this is a clear example of the importance of shared decision-making for this all-too-common problem. We hope you've learned a great deal about how to make these decisions. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.